Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Mark Magnuson. Hello and welcome into Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Mark Magnuson. In today's episode, Riley Smith will speak with Iowa State climatologist Dr. Justin Glisson. And Dustin Huffman will have Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' remarks from the Iowa Renewable Fuel Summit. We'll also be joined by Russ Parker, who will provide his faith-based segment. Let's turn our attention now to this week's headlines. Senators John Tester, Chuck Grassley, and Mike Rounds reintroduced their Meatpacking Special Investigator Act to fight consolidation and enforce the national antitrust laws. The bill would create the Office of the Special Investigator for Competition Matters within the USDA. The office would be made up of a team of investigators that have subpoena power and would be responsible for targeting and preventing anti-competitive practices among large players in the meat and poultry industries. Also, a group of senators have urged the Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service to take swift action to address the ongoing avian influenza outbreak. The lawmakers asked Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack to quickly use funds provided by Congress in the fiscal year 2023 Agriculture Appropriations Bill. Led by Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Wisconsin Democrat, the lawmakers say, quote, it is imperative the agency quickly deploy additional resources and work with the states in improving biosecurity measures within the avian supply chain, including the disinfection of sites and the testing and quarantining of affected flocks. As of January 31, 2023, APHIS confirmed avian flu had been found in 745 flocks in 47 states and affected over 58 million birds. And in other poultry news, it is also Super Bowl weekend. And while Chiefs and Eagles fans fight this weekend over who has the better team, the rest of the country will watch over a plate of chicken wings. 1.45 billion of them, according to projections released by the National Chicken Council. That's an average of four wings per American. NCC spokesman Tom Super said it's a record figure, sparked in part by lower retail prices year over year. Chicken wing prices are actually down double digits over a year ago. And the reason for that is twofold. The main reason is the wings were through the roof at the height of the pandemic. Prices were at all-time highs. Demand was at all-time highs. And if you think about it, you know, what did people do, you know, during the pandemic? They ordered takeout for the most part, right? We, we stopped going out to eat. And pizza places and wing joints, they were designed for takeout. So they really didn't have to change their business models during the pandemic like other restaurants did. For more daily news stories, you can visit our website, iowaagnet.com, to find our news section. That's all the time we have for headlines this week. Let's turn things over now to Russ Parker and his faith-based food for thought segment here on Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, where Iowa Ag Matters. I've decided that my new wardrobe will automatically include dog hair. It seems impossible with two shedding Britney Spaniels to keep the dark items free of pet hair. Fact of the matter is, my wife and I have lived with Britney's and one Labrador mixed in there for over 40 years, and we're pretty much resigned to making sure that there's a roll of masking tape stowed away in the car to remove any pet hair that might have traveled with us to our next destination. Shedding is actually an interesting process, kind of the way that the old makes way for the new. 
Another example is what I found in the chicken house when I was a kid. A huge black snake had decided to reveal his past presence by leaving behind a paper-thin remnant of his former self. It was the first snakeskin I ever found and possibly still the largest one I've ever seen. And the grandkids found another one in the barn last summer. The skin looking like a compressed straw wrapper left at the outside of a large hole that went underneath the concrete floor of my shop. They carefully stretched it out and took it home with them. And continuing on the topic of shedding, my wife and I were thinking about starting our annual ritual of looking for deer sheds. While I wouldn't call it a date, we enjoy walking through the fields and woods looking for deer antlers. We have accumulated many sheds through the years, and the grandkids really enjoy looking for those horned treasures. When they do find one, we write their name and the date on the skull end of the shed and put it in a special spot in the house. And in the summer, we are always looking for those bucks with new growth covered in velvet. Another kind of shedding, I suppose, it could be called anyway, is when the leaves turn brown and fall from the trees. This is nature's way for allowing new growth as the branches grow and expand and make way for new leaves each spring. And as Christians, the good news is that we too have the opportunity for new growth. Because Jesus Christ shed his blood as a way to forgive us for our sins, we can live with great hope that we can be made new. In Corinthians, we read, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thank you, Russ. Up next, we will have Riley Smith's conversation with Iowa State climatologist Dr. Justin Glisson. That's next here on Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Mark your calendars for an event you won't want to miss. Registration is now open for the Iowa Soybean Association's Innovation to Profit Conference on February 16, 2023 at the FFA Enrichment Center in Ankeny, Iowa. Find research-backed solutions and opportunities to help you create a successful game plan to bring profitability to your operation. Register today by visiting www.iasoybeans.com. This message brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association and the Soy Checkoff. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's Riley Smith. Well, we're here today with Iowa State climatologist Dr. Justin Glisson for a check of the U.S. drought monitor and just a little bit more on the climatological patterns we're seeing in Iowa right now. Uh, first off, Justin, what is that drought monitor showing for us right now? Hi, Riley. Always nice to be with you. So, uh, again, as of last week, status quo. We haven't seen any changes across the state. Now, we, of course, we've had uh, some snowpack on the ground. We've had some weather uh, dis disturbances come through the state with some precipitation. But given that the soil profiles are frozen, not a lot of infiltration. Of course, in the shallower parts of the, the soil profile where we've had above average temperatures, squishy layer there, we've had some infiltration. But overall, status quo, which is better than degradation, and we should expect moving forward with warming temperatures that we could see some improvement as we move through February. 
Now, is there a little bit of a concern? I know that those temperatures, uh, you know, with it getting warmer, that we could lose a little bit of that snowpack. Will it get warm enough to where if that snowpack melts, it will infiltrate the soil, or are we worried about maybe losing some of that moisture from it? We'll lose some of it given just the warming that we get on the surface versus through the soil profile. We don't get a lot of snow water equivalent out of snowpack anyway, but we do need that moisture any way that we can get it. So snowpack melt will be beneficial. We're gonna see temperatures in the 40s over the next week, which should allow the top layer of soil to thaw out and we should get some at least shallow infiltration. We're not gonna see a rapid warming event. We're not gonna lose the snowpack. Also, we have to consider that the snowpack is compacted and there's a crust on top of it. Uh, so it won't melt as fast if we do stay in the uh, 30s and 40s. Well, and you know, outside of those temperatures as well, now that we have those February forecasts, what are we expecting uh, to see for the next month? Well, if you believe Puxatani Phil, we have six more weeks of winter, but uh, if you look at the February outlooks and the short-term outlooks, we'll start with the short-term. We're seeing a, a high probability of warmer than average temperatures through the middle of February, and then a slightly elevated wet signal for much of the state. So that's a good signal to see as we do start the warm-up into uh, late winter and early spring. If we look at February in general, we are seeing a signal for slightly elevated weather conditions uh, in the eastern half of the state, but no clear signal on temperature. So if we go back and rely on those short-term outlooks, at least for the first half of the month, uh, above average temperatures. Now, I know earlier on, you know, kind of before winter when we were getting into that, we were, we're expecting a, you know, a pretty decently cold winter. And while we had that in December, and we've had kind of patches of that here in January or over January. Uh, it, it didn't seem like we got as much as probably we were thinking. Uh, for the rest of this winter, I mean, are we really looking at potentially just kind of staying a, a little above average? Yeah, great question. So you look at January, we were actually about five degrees above average. And without that storm we had before Christmas when we had that Arctic outbreak with several days of very frigid temperatures, which really dragged down the average for December, we've actually had a, a pretty mild or near normal uh, winter time. So again, we have February to go through. Recently, February, we've seen a, a good amount of snowpack. It's the snowiest month for the state recently in the recent trends. So we'll just have to see how that shakes out. But if we're looking at at least the short-term averages as our short-term outlooks, as we discussed earlier, we are looking uh, warmer and wetter, which could mean a more active storm track. But we're not seeing anything in the signal that suggests a, a very uh, you know, rough Arctic outbreak or huge snowstorms across the state. So we'll just have to see how we go through the rest of February and into March. Now, you mentioned earlier of, of that little bit of a crust that's formed over the snowpack that we have. Does that come primarily from just getting those cold temperatures or is that a little bit from kind of a slight thawing refreezing pattern? Actually both, yeah, great question. So when you, even when we're below freezing, that sunlight that's out when we, we don't have cloudy days, you'll get some surface melting given the particulate that that snow, the top part of the snow collects dust, dirt from pavement, all that. So you'll get some melting, but also when we do get above freezing, indeed that melt thaw uh, 
refreeze cycle will give you a crust on that, which helps uh, make the snowpack more robust and it won't melt as fast. Now, when you get in those 40 to 50 degree days, you'll start to extinguish that crust and then you'll start uh, more rapidly uh, melting that snowpack. Well, of course, you know, as we've mentioned so many times with the weather patterns that we've seen recently, it's a lot of we'll take what we can get. And, and honestly, looking on the bright side of things as we enter calving season for a lot of producers soon as well, seeing these warmer temperatures, you know, won't necessarily be a bad thing. It'll make uh, that process at the very least uh, a lot easier. Absolutely. We might have some mud out in the feedlots and, and such, but definitely these warmer temperatures, especially for calving, would be excellent. We just have gone through a, a one to two day cold air outburst from the Arctic. We're not expecting that as we move forward. So definitely as we move through February, February and March, we're out of the uh, coldest and driest part of the year, which is January. So we're, we're going to see temperatures start to gradually ramp up as we get into March and uh, more sunlight during the day as well. So uh, both good things. All right, Justin, is there any other uh, climatological patterns going on in Iowa that our listeners and our viewers should know about today? Well, we've been discussing, we're in the third year of this La Nina phase, which impacts where the storm track sets up over the United States. It's been a, it's been a part of the drought that we've seen over the last three years. We're starting to see in the climate modeling, and we've, we've discussed this over the past few weeks, a, a suggestion that we're transitioning from La Nina to what's called ENSO neutral. And when we do see that, it's a large scale shift in the atmosphere, which could mean uh, a, a wetter spring as we move forward. Also, potentially, if we look at analog years, cooler temperatures as well. But we are seeing overall a suggestion of a shift in the large scale weather pattern, which uh, could be good for the drought conditions that we see across the state and the upper Midwest. All right, Justin, lots of great information today. For those of our listeners and our viewers who would like to get in touch and just talk a little bit about Iowa's climate, how can they do that? Yes, yeah, so my direct line to my office is 515 281 8981. Send me an email, justin.glisson at iowaagriculture.gov, or go on Google, uh, search for Iowa Climatology Bureau. All my contact information is there, but we also have all those climate outlooks, a drought map. Uh, long-term forecasts, uh, long-term uh, long reports that I do for weather and climate across the state. Uh, if you don't find what you need, just uh, shoot me an email and I'll get it to you. Well, Justin, great conversation as always, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thanks, Riley. Always nice to be with you. That again was Iowa State climatologist Dr. Justin Glisson. That's it for segment two of this week's show. When we come back, Dustin will wrap up as he brings us some of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' comments from the Iowa Renewable Fuel Summit. This is Weekend Ag Matters. In February, we celebrate World Radio Day. Here at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, we aim our programming to be Iowa-centric. Our slogan is Iowa Ag Matters. Today, the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network offers nine programs per day, anywhere from two and a half to four minutes in length. Plus, we offer a long-format weekend program called Weekend Ag Matters. We thank you for supporting the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network as we celebrate World Radio Day in February. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman.
Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Dustin Huffman. On Tuesday, the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association hosted the Iowa Renewable Fuel Summit, and one of the speakers that addressed the audience was Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Here are her full remarks from the event. Ah, good morning. It's great to see everyone. Always great to be here with you. Well, I want to start by thanking Al for that very nice introduction and uh, for the opportunity to be here and join you. I'm so grateful for the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association for really being a voice for this critical industry and the farm families who make it possible. Uh, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that our state is stronger for your tireless advocacy, your research, and your educational efforts. As you know, organizations like yours are only as strong as its members that comprise them. And by that measure, RFA and our state's entire renewable fuels industry is absolutely in excellent hands. The talent and expertise of our biofuels producers are the engine of Iowa's reputation as a production powerhouse. Renewable fuels account for, I'm so excited about this, my notes say $5 billion, but I am pretty sure I heard Monty say as of today, the new stats, it's $7 billion. So I'm going with it. I think that's great. Yay. And as you know, um, supports tens of thousands of jobs in our great state. Uh, I'm always proud to stand up here and to tout to the nation uh, that we're the number one ethanol and biodiesel producing state in the country, accounting for about a fourth of America's ethanol capacity and a fifth of its biodiesel capacity. Uh, This in turn drives massive demand for corn and soybeans in which Iowa ranks first and second uh, respectively. There are much, you know, these are much more than numbers or rankings. They represent reliable, well-paying careers. They represent affordable, clean-burning fuel, and truly the difference between profit and loss for countless farm families. In short, thanks to the men and women in this room, when Iowa speaks about renewable fuels, the world listens. And we've never spoken more loudly or more clearly than we did in the past year. As you've heard, I was extremely proud uh, to lead a multi-governor letter last year that successfully pushed the EPA to issue a waiver, giving Americans access to lower-cost E15 over the summer when gas prices were at their highest. But as you heard Monty allude to, this temporary fix is only half of the story and less than half of a solution. The letter Iowa led also included a regional request that the EPA provide permanent access to E15 uh, during future summer driving months. The eight states in the region account for over 10% of the gasoline sold in the United States, more than the state of California. By law, as you also heard, EPA is required to grant this request. Yet months after the statutory deadline, they haven't so much as responded. It's unacceptable, and quite frankly, it's disappointing, but it is hardly surprising. Uh, That's why Iowa didn't just wait for the federal government to get its act together. Instead, we took charge of our own renewable fuel economy by passing the Biofuels Access Bill last year. And if you'll allow me a moment, I want to give a shout-out to Jake Swanson, who is in the audience today, who was just 
um, incredible in making sure that we got this uh, across the finish line. He put a lot of work into this, and so I was really grateful for his efforts in helping get that done. I don't know where he's at, but... Uh, you know, but in addition to Jake, RFA and its members, you know what it took to get it done because not just Jake, but you were right there with me from day one. And the final product is a powerful testament to truly good faith, discussion, negotiation, and compromise. This historic bill made Iowa the first in the, in the nation to adopt an E15 standard Setting the stage, I love this, for the single largest expansion of biofuels in our state's history. Um, you know the, the data, but I'm going to run through it again because I love to talk about it. I can't help myself. It doubled the biodiesel production tax credit. It increased fuel retailer tax credits to expand consumer access and to future-proof our fuel infrastructure. It also up updated the biodiesel fuel tax differential to incentivize higher blends and comes with a $10 million investment in the Renewable Fuel Infrastructure Program. So these policies couldn't have landed at a better time with innovative and groundbreaking uses of our agricultural products. You know, when I have the opportunity to travel to, um, to travel the state, I, I see it everywhere that I go. Uh, last year, I got to visit the Verbio Biorefinery in Nevada, which uses cones, corn corn stover to produce renewable natural gas and ethanol while creating a range of other useful products. Uh, then there's the core plant in Ellieville. It's a first of its kind in the nation commercial scale renewable BDO facility and they will help leading brands replace petroleum based sources with bio based intermediates made from corn. The biofuel law really positions Iowa to take full advantage of innovations just like these and others for years to come. But above all, it continues to send an unmistakable message that the future of fuel is already growing here, and it's growing in Iowa's fields. That no number of politicized misconceptions out of Washington or pie-in-the-sky fantasies about electric vehicles can ever change that very fact. The momentum is with us on this issue, uh, but I'm never going to stop uh, looking for opportunities to fight for our renewable fuels and our farm families. And so for me, that's meant making strategic investments in critical priorities for agriculture in rural Iowa, um, like investing in a long-term, dedicated, and growing uh, funding source for water quality, in which I'm proud to say we extended for another 10 years in 2021, or making um, it transformative investments in broadband and child care and in housing. Uh, and more recently, I announced a $40 million um, allocation for Iowa State's VET Diagnostic Lab and I've asked the legislature to appropriate um, an additional $20 million over the next two years to take that across the finish line. I was also um, proud to sign on to a letter with 24 other governors urging the Biden administration to reconsider the waters of the U.S. rule. I mean, farm families deserve certainty, not another round of intrusive regulations that threatens their livelihood and which, you know, the Supreme Court might change again in six months. So in closing, I know that this industry and agriculture continues to face challenges. But if the past 
few years have proven anything. It's the fundamental resilience of our renewable fuels industry and the farm families that power it. As the biofuel law shows, Iowa is fully committed to this industry, and I truly couldn't be more optimistic about the future. And the same goes for our entire state. After successfully weathering a tough few years, Iowa has laid a foundation on which we can continue to thrive. We've been recognized as the most fiscally responsible state in the country. Number one. We are ranked in the top 10 best states to live in America. Now take that, this little flyover state that they used to refer to as Iowa, top 10 place to live in America. And we remain the number one state for opportunity. But even bigger things are coming this session. Uh, we've already enacted comprehensive education reform that'll give every student access to a school that fits their individual needs and provides our public schools with the long overdue flexibility that they've also needed. We're working to improve rural health care, address the opioid crisis, and streamline state government for the many Iowans who use state services. So it may sound like a lot, but I'm here to tell you I'm just scratching the surface. Much like each and every one of you in this room, Iowa didn't get to this point by standing still. We got here by thinking big and aiming high. It's what Iowans expect, it's what they deserve, and I'm here to tell you, it's what we'll continue to deliver. So thank you again for ha uh, having me. It's an incredible honor to serve as the governor of this great state and to work side by side with each and every one of you in an industry that is critical to our state and our state's economy. So thank you very much. We appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you. That again was the remarks from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds at the Iowa Renewable Fuel Summit on Tuesday. And that is the end of this edition of Weekend Ag Matters. You can find all our content online at iowaagnet.com. You can also find replays of our podcasts, including two-a-day market podcasts that you can get on Amazon, Apple, Google, Spotify, and Podbean. From the IRN studios in Des Moines, I'm Dustin Huffman. For Mark Magnuson, Russ Parker, and Riley Smith, we thank you for listening. This has been Weekend Ag Matters.